0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Doing pretty well. How about yourself?
1: Pretty well. Uh, It's entering our busy season again because all of you in academia are about to go on break.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's exactly right. (laughs) <laughs> which I means mean, we
1: get to not sleep.
0: Yeah. I don't feel that bad for you because like all my colleagues are walking around saying it's almost over. And I'm like, mine's just starting. Thanks. Feel camp. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I will be right there with you. Not sleeping. I was very excited to talk to you because we haven't talked in a little bit, but I finished this book over one of your favorite people. I read the autobiography of Elon Musk last week, or not the autobiography, the biography of Elon Musk last week. And man, that was crazy.
1: Isn't that a good book? Man,
0: it was so good. And all I could think during most of it was, why doesn't John work for this guy? And then I realized, no, John wants to be this guy. He is this guy. So this is why he doesn't want to work for him. (laughs) (laughs) But it was so good. Like, he's not nearly as evil as I thought he was. He's just an engineer.
1: (laughs) Yes. Ah. If you give somebody with limited social skills unlimited resources, that's what you get.
0: Yeah. That's exactly right. (laughs) Like, I was like, why is everyone so mad he's taking over Twitter? Because it was really funny because I kept, obviously, reading portions out loud um, to my family and everything. And my 13-year-old son was like, why are you? Cause I, so Elon Musk said that he makes his kids read as much as they play video games. And so I tell this to my son who used to be a voracious reader and has sort of fallen off and plays a lot of games. And I was like, I think you need to read as much as you play video games. And he goes, why are you listening to this rich guy? I was like, it's not that he's rich. He's ridiculously intelligent. And my son goes, can't be that smart. He bought Twitter. <laughs> ouch zing (laughs) take that elon (laughs) uh yeah so it was really great and i will say the (laughs) i love a book that actually makes me lol right not just (laughs) type lol but actually lol and this one did when it said (laughs) it was talking about his time as a teenager and it said he does what a lot of teenagers young very gifted teenagers do is they look for like a higher dogma right and so they begin to investigate like buddhism and all these you know ancient religions and it said he kept circling back to the one thing that became his religion dot 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 the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy by douglas adams right (laughs) (laughs) and i said same Elon, same. (laughs) I thought it was amazing. If you ever
1: want to come on the Don't Panic Geocast. Exactly.
0: (laughs) I was so excited. I listened to that, like, paragraph probably, no kidding, five times. I was so excited (laughs) by that. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what I spent the last week and a half doing.
1: (laughs) So, has your audiobook journey been going well?
0: My gosh. I... I don't know I think it's because I can't sit still I just can't sit I don't watch TV I just can't like I can go to the movies but I just can't sit still and so I have ingested so many audiobooks I'm at I'm so excited um, not all of these are audio but 75% are I'm at 20 of 40 books already and it's April very wow yeah
1: (laughs) i'm only at nine i thought i was doing pretty good
0: man and mine also 50 percent of that 75 percent as i push my glasses up my nose were over 25 hours long audiobooks
1: (laughs) there you go yeah Uh
0: uh-huh yeah i'm not saying they were good but they have been consumed
1: So what's your fiction to nonfiction mix this year?
0: This year, it's pretty high fiction. Um, my friend had wanted me to read this series that I read, and so that was a, a large portion of it. Um, and so I did read, and I think we already talked about this, that great book, the um, Turn the Ship Around. That was so cool. That was a really great book. Um, and... Oh, I did, I have read. So I read a weird book about dopamine. I read this book about wintering, which is like about resetting your mind. So there's a few. It's other things that matter. It's probably 25%, 30% nonfiction, actually. Yeah. That Elon That's Musk impressive. book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that Elon Musk book. I really love just like getting on the library app and just being like, what's available? okay. And I was like, man, Lehman loves this guy. I'm going to read this dumb book. (laughs) I was like, this book was great. I give it five stars. Amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really wonderful. So I was excited about that. I was kind of sad that it was written, you know, in 2016 or something because I want to know about all the stuff now. Right.
1: Well, I mean, that's how that's how awesome he was. Even by that point, that yeah. they were like, "Okay, we got to write a book on this guy."
0: Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. I have since put out multiple. Like, all right, I need to go ride in your Tesla again, somebody. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I've been bugging our mutual friend Virginia to give me a ride in her Tesla.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I think I think we have that planned for this weekend. She's also reading the book now that I. Kept talking about it so much. She said, fine, fine. I'll rent it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, cool, yeah. So yeah. no, my, my list has been a hundred percent nonfiction.
0: <laughs> As usual. <laughs> As usual. Um <laughs> uh,
1: But there have been quite a few biographies in there.
0: See, that's interesting. And... I don't love biographies. Which is why I was so surprised how much I like this Elon Musk biography.
1: I mean, maybe, you know, we've talked about our beer taste changing. Maybe, That's- <laughs> maybe your book taste is changing, too.
0: I don't know if I'm mentally ready for that statement. We'll revisit it. <laughs> What's your favorite biography that you've read this year, then?
1: Hmm. That's tough. Wow. <laughs> um, the biography Jaeger by Chuck Jaeger oh. was very entertaining. Disturbing in points.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, also yeah. had
1: you laughing hysterically in points. Excellent. Um, Let's see, that one was pretty good. Uh, Mark Hacera's book, Tanker Pilot, was interesting. It's not really a biography. It's a bunch of war stories about being a tanker pilot with hints of leadership in it. But it's sort of a biography. That was pretty good. Gotcha. Yeah, they're probably in, in the top two bios this year. But I've got more uh, that are on my, my list here that I've got still to do. Uh, let's see. Clarence Kelly Johnson. Uh, to do Earhart.
0: I mean, uh, eccentric
1: orbits about the iridium satellite network.
0: Oh, that's cool. Have you seen an iridium flash?
1: I have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That scared me. Thought for sure we were getting taken over by aliens.
1: <laughs> and uh, I think somebody was saying around here that they had seen like the little line of the Starlink satellites. I was like, that's where my internet comes from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that- I think
1: they thought I was crazy.
0: Oh, what do you think they are? <laughs> oh, hopefully that's where our internet for camp will come from. We'll see.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, Starlink's... We've had great luck with it other than, uh, like, every satellite service. If it's, like, torrential downpour, you lose yeah. connection.
0: Yeah. Luckily, it hasn't but done other that, that this week. Been... Oh, wait. <laughs>
1: yeah, this week's forecast is not so great.
0: Yeah. That's okay.
1: Uh, but, yeah, so... That's our that's our book life and our internet life. Uh, but you mentioned that you're getting ready to go to field camp, and so you're starting to wrap up things in classes, and you said that you were going to talk about dolomite in class, and that's something that we haven't really talked about on here before, and yeah. it's more interesting than it sounds.
0: It sounds amazingly interesting. How dare you, sir?
1: <laughs> oh, come on. You, you, you don't know. You don't view things through the eyes of a geophysicist.
0: Oh, uh, that's <laughs> slightly true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, a whole chapter in my dissertation was about dolomite. So it's sort of interesting. <laughs> right. As much as I badmouth carbonate rocks. This one is very interesting, but it's also weird. So I, I don't know, I've talked about this on here. In my sedimentary geology class, I have not done PowerPoints. I said I was going to teach old school. <laughs> and so I I make my notes and I write on the board, which is, it feels weird. It feels so slow. And but
1: it gives people a chance to absorb it.
0: So that's what I think, too. It's not maybe what the grades are panning out to say but
1: hmm. um, interesting
0: yeah it is interesting but they also say they they also say that they like it so you know um, so that's what I'm doing and, and I start my notes with my notes from my sedimentary class you know I go back and see see what I wrote and so one of the interesting those things those
1: tablets are heavy to carry around you still have oh them
0: oh my gosh <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. all right single host of don't panic (laughs) (laughs) sorry
1: it was just it was too easy it
0: was that was low-hanging fruit (laughs) yes but you know i also yeah yeah there's no powerpoints back when i took this class um there were slideshows however
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, the actual slides.
0: The actual slides, exactly. Oh, man. Um, so one thing I thought was like, is this dolomite problem still a problem? Because that's actually a thing in geology, is this thing called the dolomite problem. But before we talk You're about so that... so good at naming things. I know, isn't it great? Uh, <laughs> before <laughs> we talk about that, we should probably talk about what dolomite is in general. Um, and I don't know, do you even remember said pet, Sean? <laughs>
1: Dolomite's a carbonate.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's there's something about a substitution in there,
0: mm-hmm. one
1: of those ion substitutions. So it's probably an iron, a calcium, magnesium, or something like that substitution.
0: Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. So normal carbonates, calcium carbonate, CaCO3, right? And then you can stick a whole bunch of other cations in there because... If they're close to the same sort of size, you can shove them into these lattices, right? And when we're talking about carbonates, we're usually talking about seawater. And therefore, there's a lot of things floating around in there, especially a whole lot of magnesium. And that's what dolomite becomes. It's calcium, magnesium, carbonate, essentially. Um, What I did learn is that it was named for the French mineralogist Diodat Gratet de (laughs) Dolomieu.
1: And yep. you can send those pronunciations into <laughs> show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. not
0: <laughs> That's right. I took German. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> I so can't like believe <laughs> there weren't
1: any V's <laughs> as W's in there.
0: Exactly. I said "dolemu." It's probably right. <laughs> um, but, but you may be thinking, maybe. <laughs> There's a lot of magnesium in seawater anyway. And when we talk about carbonates, we talk about calcite mostly, CaCO3. And you can have a high magnesium calcite or low magnesium calcite. Okay, well, if there's some magnesium in calcite, how is dolomite different? And this comes to your favorite sort of stuff. And you talk about the crystalline lattice. And that's what makes these different than just a magnesium rich calcite. It's a whole different mineral.
1: Right. So there's a different structure fundamentally, and it all has to do with where the magnesium goes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. So in magnesium-rich calcite, those magnesiums just randomly take the place of calcites in the crystalline lattice. But dolomite is a much more orderly mineral, and so it's sort of like a magnesium layer and then a calcite layer. So it's a much more ordered replacement of calcites it isn't random at all and therefore you create a new crystalline structure and you get a new mineral
1: yeah so it's less of the you know grandma's in the kitchen cooking and we're out of something so we'll substitute a splash of something else for it that's kind of a magnesium rich carbonate right yeah
0: that's exactly right yeah
1: like we need to shove some this is close enough We'll right. we'll shove this in there and nobody'll ever know. Uh, but dolomite is following the recipe card, and the recipe card actually calls for sour cream, not butter,
0: <laughs> or not any of that Greek yogurt. You got to use the sour cream. Uh, right, <laughs> that's right. And I mean, all of it is possible because they're sort of the same size. But magnesium is actually a bit smaller than calcium, and so when you introduce this whole layer of magnesium into the crystalline lattice you actually create a whole lot of porosity because now you got a lot more space and dolomite is known for this that it has this thing called vuggy porosity which you can create some pretty big holes in the rock which as you know we can fill up with hydrocarbons or water depends on what you're looking for and this vuggy porosity is very common in dolomite
1: Right, it's just kind of uh, cratered looking.
0: Yeah, yep, that's exactly right. Um, Dolomite can be, this is like the intro geology part, where dolomite doesn't react with acid initially like calcite does, and so that's how you can tell them apart because they sort of look alike. um, But if you powder dolomite up, it will react because you're releasing all that calcium carbonate too and so then it will react with acid Um, but this different magnesium calcium crystalline structure also makes dolomite very distinctive in the field and i don't know if you remember this from field camp but it weathers into (laughs) this ridiculously sharp texture that ubiquitously by geologists is called tear pants
1: oh yeah I yeah, remember
0: that because it'll tear your pants. <laughs> and if you've had to do any field work on any amount of dolomite, you know that the soles of your boots will not last long. <laughs> so dolomite. There's a reason pointy. there's a
1: boot tree at field camp. <laughs> yes, that's
0: exactly <laughs> right. Like dolomite is super pointy. Um, my old field professor would, you know, hit the rock with his rock hammer. And if it thudded, he'd say that's limestone, and if it pinged, it was dolomite. And I mean, that's not always true, but it's a pretty good, like, it's a pretty good field test, actually. So, yeah, I
1: think if you do that and you do the acid test, and you have any clue about where you're standing, yeah, you can tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And how we form dolomite is that. You know, lots of times dolomite totally replaces calcite. And we'll talk about this here in a minute. Um, And so you might get, like, a thuddy ping or a pingy thud. (laughs) Which is actually a really cool opportunity to be able to talk about in the field, like, how limestone and dolomite interact.
1: And it's yet another case of it's not black or white. It's all gray area in geology. Mm
0: -hmm. That's exactly Exactly right. Um, And so this gets us around to that problem, though, because there is this dolomite problem. And the problem is that there's a lot of dolomite in the ancient rock record. It's not like specifically, you know, there's a whole lot way back in the Proterozoic or anything like that. There's just a lot in the ancient, but there's not a lot in the Cenozoic. And so if there's so much a long time ago like what's happening because usually we try to look for modern analogs right that's uniformitarianism but not only do we not have a lot of Cenozoic age dolomite we don't have hardly any forming IRL like today that's the problem
1: (laughs) yeah so where'd all this stuff come from
0: yeah I don't know talk to you next week (laughs) That's why it's short... called
1: the Dolomite Problem. Right, and it's time for gonna... everybody's favorite segment of the show.
0: <laughs> going to be a short lecture. Um, so this was something I started looking into over the last week because I was like, I mean, my notes, I took said pet a while ago, as you said. Hard to read those carved <laughs> tablets um, of not Dolomite. They were slate. Thanks. Uh, so it was hard to read those. But I thought, is this like still an issue? Have we solved this? We haven't solved it. <laughs> no. Still a problem. <laughs>
1: Still a problem. So we're not making any... We don't have any recent, but there's a lot in the past. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, what's different in the past? Well, climate.
0: Exactly. So where we see dolomite forming... Well, forming in the past, it's probably associated with high sea level, which while our sea level is getting higher... It's actually not high right now, right?
1: Yeah, because remember, it's cold right now.
0: Exactly. Like, yes, we're warming up. We're in the interglacial period. But in general, it's fairly cold, and it's done nothing but get cold throughout the Cenozoic. So as we came out of the Mesozoic, it was super, super hot, but sea levels started to go down. We started to form ice. And so maybe that's why we don't see it in the Cenozoic, But regardless, there's a lot of dolomite out there. So how do we get this? And I sort of alluded to this already, that a lot, especially that we see today, of dolomite is replacive. It's originally starts as a limestone, and then some kind of fluid goes through it that has a lot of magnesium in it, and you actually piece by piece replace those calcite crystals with dolomite crystals
1: and this is one of the cool things in mineralogy that you can do this swap you you can change the butter out <laughs> while the cake's baking by diffusing <laughs> something else through it
0: <laughs> i think you i think your cooking metaphors are breaking down <laughs>
1: They are, because this is just so weird compared to processes that we're familiar with on an everyday basis.
0: Exactly. uh, Man, this is like the killer PhD, um, well, it's a killer graduate level question, but it's certainly a killer like PhD level exam question, which is, you know, when does uniformitarianism fail? Right. And so, you know, this isn't necessarily a fail, but is such a weird... Thing, you know and the dolomite problem is sort of that like we don't see it today so what is happening so how do we even know dolomite replaces calcite this is where the importance of a good petrography course comes in i
1: thought you were gonna say a good computer model <laughs>
0: how dare or a good you? laboratory experiment how dare you there's some super cool laboratory experiments we'll save those this is just an intro to dolomite But there are some super neat laboratory experiments. Maybe we'll talk about that in the upcoming weeks um, about making dolomite. But this is just taking a rock that is dolomite and checking it out and seeing what's happened. So the nice thing about dolomite is that it's very easy to see in a thin section, so under a microscope, because dolomite forms these rhombohedral shapes. And so they look a lot like calcite, which makes sense because they're almost the same. Um, So the normal tricks that you would use, like cross-polarization and stuff, don't work so well. But this dolomite rhombohedral structure is very easy to see. But what you also can tell is that it fills in things that were already in the calcite. So either it's filling in these holes or it will, like, replace a fossil almost perfectly and so you can say oh well this was calcite because we know that this mollusk gastropod whatever has a calcite shell but now it looks like it's all dolomite so this dolomite must have replaced it right there
1: yeah it's like when you're looking at hydrothermal processes and ore deposits right you can tell that something else took the place of what was originally there because you know what was supposed to originally be there
0: exactly Exactly. And so why isn't this happening a lot today? Dolomite should be forming because actually magnesium is super saturated in normal seawater today, but we're not precipitating dolomite. Now, there are a few places in the world where we are, and I think that should be talked about on the experiment show, but it's not precipitating today probably because it takes a lot of energy to actually nucleate dolomite. So it takes a lot more energy instead of, you know, putting in that splash of magnesium to actually follow the recipe. And so, the earth's lazy it doesn't want to put in that. There's not a, there's only so much Gibbs free energy to go around, right? Right. <laughs> and so, maybe that's why. But there are three models as to how dolomite has probably formed. And there's not there's not a lot of preference. I'd say this first one we're going to talk about, the evaporative reflux model, is probably the most popular. But again, eh, who knows?
1: Okay, so evaporative reflux. That sounds like something you'd see an ad for <laughs> medicine for.
0: I know. I was gonna say. I think I have that disease. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so oftentimes dolomite is found in association not only with limestone but also with evaporites. So interbedded limestone dolomite and evaporites. And so where you find evaporites, from we talked about the Mediterranean Sea not very long ago, um, that became a closed basin. And all the seawater evaporated. So if you're in that situation, what are you going to precipitate? You're going to precipitate a lot of gypsum. You're also going to precipitate this thing called aragonite, which is another carbonate in a different pseudomorph structure. Um, And as you start to precipitate those things, you're going to raise that magnesium ratio in the remaining seawater so much that it's going to get real briny. And brine is dense, and so it's going to sink. And the stuff that you have at the bottom of this basin is usually limestone. And so now you're saturating this limestone quite literally with this super heavy briny magnesium fluid, and it starts to pluck out those calcites and recrystallize dolomite right there.
1: This seems like a reasonable explanation and one that we could— gather observations to support.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, and so this leads to this process called evaporative pumping. And this is like this weird capillary action. This is the stuff you like, so you need to look this up. But, <laughs> you know, if you have like these two grains and you get this weird like little meniscus between them of fluid, right? And then if you have this highly evaporative environment, you suck this brine up and you get this evaporative pumping, which basically keeps sucking this brine through that limestone just by like the mechanical process of evaporation. And so that's what's keeping it like moving through there. Because if it takes a lot of energy to nucleate these dolomites, like you have to have an extremely rich magnesium fluid that's constantly being circulated. And so this is the way that is suggested to keep that like constant circulation of a magnesium-rich fluid going through the limestone.
1: Yeah, and you're right. These are the kind of things that I, I gravitate towards because I like the mechanical explanation.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and it makes uh, sense. But
1: I will say that it doesn't necessarily survive the Occam-Fraser test either. Yes,
0: but. it does not. And you don't always find dolomites with evaporites just because that's the part that like the dolomites I've worked on, not necessarily in places with a lot of evaporites. So even though this one gets talked about a lot, I think it gets talked about a lot because this is an experiment that has happened. Maybe that's why, but there's still other models that are out there. Right. Yeah. And so the second one, it's called the Dorag model named for a person. Um, but you could also call it the mixing zone model. And so this is where you have meteoric water. Okay. So fresh water mixing with seawater. That's already in the pore space of this limestone that's forming. Okay. So you're going to mix this freshwater with this seawater. You do something that I don't care about because it's chemistry. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous to
1: talk about dolomite and say that.
0: (laughs) Throw in some shade. Um, So you increase that chemical activity of magnesium relative to the calcium, causing that dolomitization so you're getting that replacement right there um this one like has a lot of pushback about it um <laughs> uh, but more recently so one of the like the recent things talking about this dolomite problem is talking about also that meteoric water mixing with seawater but it has to do with like microbial activity that would promote dolomitization so that's really neat um a paper that I need to read that just came out a couple of years ago um, that talks about how you could get this microbial mediated dolomitization, which happens with a lot of other like sulfur related um, minerals as well. Hmm. Yeah. So that definitely wasn't in my notes from, you know, the last glacial maximum when I took this class, (laughs) but it seems like, Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that microbes do that we don't know about, and so you can almost, like, add this. It's, like, a better example of this DORAG model.
1: Yep. Hmm. So then, you know, the real question is, are all of these right?
0: Exactly. And
1: there's this combination of them, because that seems to be what we generally find.
0: Right, exactly. Um, The main thing is you have to... Flush lots of magnesium-rich fluids through. So you need like a very, I don't want to say energetic. That's not exactly what I mean. But you need a very dynamic system where you have a lot of magnesium-rich water that's forcibly being put into the pore spaces of limestone. And that's where you get to the third model. And when you think about moving lots of seawater around, I mean tides are one of the things that I think about immediately, right? That's a pretty energetic situation. So, tidal pumping. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a big source of energy and it does a lot to other geophysical processes. Mm -hmm. And we know that we can pump fluids around doing that by looking at under glaciers, as we've talked about. So, quite feasible.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, The big... Place to go, and I got to go here when I worked in the industry, which was amazing. The big place to go when you're talking about carbonates and their formation is to the Bahamas. And there are so many fights about the way carbonates form. (laughs) And the fights are because when you're looking at carbonates in terms of like being an aquifer or being a reservoir for oil and gas it's very hard to understand where porosity and permeability form because it generally forms after the rock forms. (laughs) And so it's hard to predict in a carbonate where that stuff is. But also if you can figure it out, it's a big deal. Um, And so there's a lot of study in the Bahamas about modern carbonate systems and then you can take that and apply it to the ancient rock record and so there is dolomite forming um at this place sugarloaf key that is in the bahamas um it's well it's one of the lower florida keys but it's near the northern bahaman carbonate sort of examples and so there is dolomite forming there today tidal pumping is what they have because there's a pretty high tide there. And so that's the explanation there, but you're absolutely right, John. It's probably all of these things just depending where you are.
1: Yeah. So that's the, I guess that's probably the field summary of what we think is happening, but really, like you said, we got to get into the lab and try to figure some of this out, but that's a whole different yeah,
0: yeah, it sure is. Like, and the, the dolomite. I said like, you know part of my dissertation was on dolomite, and mine was hydrothermal dolomite, which was actually related to ore deposits. So these hot fluids that were from hot magma were flowing through limestones, and it dolomitized them. Um, and so dolomite's just a very interesting thing, but primary dolomite is the dolomite problem. Like, it's fairly easy to turn pre-existing limestone into dolomite, but there is primary dolomite, and we know this from petrography. You can look and say, oh, well, those replacive textures aren't there. This dolomite had to, like, come first. Like, it grew here first, and I think that we will revisit that and especially this really exciting, like, possible microbial connection when we talk about what do you do to put this in the lab and get some actual data out right yeah
1: and I would be curious to know too this is somewhere where I don't have a lot of connections in our field uh, just a couple to the people that do mineralogical modeling in things like chemist workbench Mm -hmm. where they'll try to set up a bunch of different scenarios in a model And say, do we get this mineral forming? Is it energetically favorable for it to form? And we're talking about more than doing some calculations on paper with Gibbs Energy here.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. I have a small amount of experience with that. So we should certainly discuss that. Because, I mean, well, we're not going to solve the dolomite problem. But (laughs) it is a very interesting problem because there is a lot of it. So, yeah, how did it get there? It's Kind of cool. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: but, you I'm know, there is another problem that we might be able to solve.
0: <laughs> What's that?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's the topic of this week's Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay! <laughs> I apologize in advance for this.
1: <laughs> so, we couldn't actually get the paper because paywalls,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh, but we were able to get an article about the paper. Uh-huh. And yeah. I'm this article about the paper actually goes into several papers.
0: <laughs> In fact,
1: there's oh you know, about fifteen references here.
0: yeah, yeah, there's a lot. I did my best, but it seems like Deborah Goodwin, who I would love if she listened to the show. I doubt it, but <laughs> really loves horses and <laughs> wants to let us know what horse preferences are in terms of a lot of different things. And this was the original abstract that I found was talking about horses' preferences on flavor. Because, I mean, my dog will eat anything. But horses apparently have a discerning palate, among lots of other things.
1: Right. And, you know, kind of the, the message I got from this is horses, we know they're very intelligent, Mm -hmm. that was a kind of jerks
0: (laughs) so my husband would would totally like back this up he cannot stand horses so I live out in the country a lot of our neighbors have horses and mules but he grew up with his uncle had this horse named Joker and he constantly talks about it because Joker was so mean to him that it ruined him on horses forever (laughs) But, yeah, I think there is some empirical evidence of horse jerkiness in this for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, so the the summary that we found talks about lots of different things that have been studied. Uh, the one that I found the most interesting was not actually the paper that you had originally found. Mm-hmm. But the one on using, they called them foraging devices or foraging enrichment.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And
1: so... They said, well, horses actually have a better attitude when they forage, not uh, get fed buckets of concentrate.
0: Yeah. Same for my chickens. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's more of a natural diet.
0: Yeah.
1: But then they said, well, what about if we put them in a a puzzle ball, basically?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Will the horses be, you know, stimulated by that. Mm -hmm. Well, they were, sort of. (laughs) Uh, If the puzzle ball was in a bucket, they just got really frustrated. (laughs) If it was on the ground, the researchers were nervous that they were going to eat something they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So they ended up putting it in like a big Rubbermaid tub looking thing.
0: And they're fine with that.
1: And they're totally fine with that as long as the food comes out at a semi-constant rate. If it gets jammed up and they have to beat it around, they eventually just start biting it and throwing it.
0: <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> so our cat has this little, because she's so fat, she has this little treat thing. And so it's like this weird little treat. Like It's like a Weeble. Like if you hit it, it just flops around and eventually it'll throw out a treat. And she gets real mad if they don't come out. <laughs> and she yeah. like will throw it across the room. And this is what I imagined when I was reading this about these horses getting angry. <laughs> that the treats got stuffed up in their forge ball.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they tried different shapes, and they found that a polyhedral design was the most promising.
0: Hilarious. I think that's so- because it will roll and stop, roll and stop, and that makes it more predictable. Yes. My dog has a polyhedral treat dispenser. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And they also talk about crib biting.
0: Yeah, man. These things are crazy, right? Buffering stomach acids based on biting things to produce alkaline saliva. Like, this is interesting.
1: Yeah. They also found out, though, that you could do it because you were angry or so much yeah. that you give yourself an ulcer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, maybe you're get, just being a jerk. There you go.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they did video endoscopes of 15 crib-biting foals. And they put them on antacids, basically.
0: <laughs> 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 and found that that indeed helped. Maybe they have evaporative reflux disease.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there was some behavior information in here, too, as well. Of You know, well, when they didn't have heartburn all the time, they... Behaved a little better.
0: Mm, Yeah, me too. Horses, me too.
1: (laughs) I did enjoy how most of the pictures in here are horses rearing up or kicking. I know.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, like, don't get mad at us about these jerk comments. Clearly, these photos are biased towards that.
1: (laughs) Though, so the flavor choice we'll get to in just a second. My potentially favorite part of this was the trip to fan study.
0: Ah! Oh man. What? Like, oh, tryptophan's amazing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So tryptophan is amino acid, and you know, we all know about getting it from Turkey and you know, oh, that's why you're having your Thanksgiving nap and mm-hmm. all these things that we that we say to each other. hmm Uh, but tryptophan boosts serotonin release, which makes you happy and sedated and relaxed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they did this to horses. There are commercially available tryptophan supplements for when your horse is a little too much of a horse's. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, they found that if they fed double the recommended dose, it still took six hours for this to show up in the blood. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) And... More interestingly, the response to tryptophan, whether it did anything or not, really depended mostly on the background diet of the animal.
0: Right. So whether they ate hay or oats, right, that that regulated how fast that tryptophan showed up.
1: Yeah. So can it be absorbed into mm-hmm. the blood? Mm-hmm. Uh, And then they had to do some tests because you're dealing with animals, not robots here. Uh, So some things like, well, does it matter? Do they prefer whichever feeding device we put on the right or on the left? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they do have a side preference. It's 50-50, whether it's right or left. But an individual horse has a side preference and what was really interesting yeah. was as you got older, the strength of your side preference increased. Very young horses had almost no preference. And by the time you got old, you were like always going to eat out of the one on the right.
0: Ah, uh, I mean, I want to say, yeah, of course, right? Of course. Right. Again, they get curmudgeon stuck in their ways. They're not some little puppy over there just horking down all the food they can no matter where it comes from, right? They want to use yep. that mug and sit at that table, and that's it.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. And the whole thing that drew me into this in the first place was this clickbait thing that said, horses love bananas, not carrots.
1: <laughs> Which, you know, was only, it was very
0: clickbaity. It was, because... That picture of a horse eating a banana was clearly not real, (laughs) because that is not what this study is about, really.
1: (laughs) No, so they were trying to see how wide of a palate do the horses have? Are they picky about what they eat or not? And basically, the answer was, not really.
0: Right. But if they have a choice, there is some preference.
1: There is some preference, but at the end of the day, they know that, you know, there's this wide variety of flavors that we like, they're safe to eat, and they keep us healthy. We'll Mm -hmm. probably take any of those. But yeah, there are some preferences. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flavors ranked in descending order of preference were fenugreek, banana, (laughs) cherry, rosemary, cumin, carrot, peppermint, and oregano.
0: I feel like that is my exact same preference horse. (laughs) <laughs> Except for fenugreek. I hate fenugreek. It is awful. But
1: So while the title of your clickbait was true, they like bananas more than carrots.
0: They like fenugreek more than anything. So there you go.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> <gasps> mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And
1: then they also studied the rate at which the horses eat, the rate of intake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you get older, your rate of intake slows down.
0: Same horses, same. Yep. (laughs) Oh, man. That's, yeah. This was very interesting, though, right? Like, we do a lot of dog and cat papers. So I throw in this horse paper.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's not one I would have found. And Mm -hmm. I definitely learned some things as well as confirmed some notions.
0: (laughs) Yep. That is exactly right. And we'll leave it at there because I'm sure we're already going to get enough hate mail from my mispronunciation of (laughs) Dolemieux.
1: Well, if you have that hate mail to send in, Shannon, how can they do that?
0: Uh, at John underscore Leap. No. Um, <laughs> so you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. You may do so too. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.